So uh, me and the fam, me and the fam are fresh back uh, from 10 days in Ecuador. And uh, we were back here uh, to worship with you all last week. I'm so thankful for the way that Jared uh, shared and presented God's word. Huge blessing to me. Uh, I wanted to uh, walk you through in scrapbook fashion uh, a few of our highlights that we captured uh, on photo. This picture, uh, it's awesome that you can catch some moments. This is literally my, my two boys' very first look at another continent. So they literally woke up, I had the camera in hand, they walked to the window, and this is them looking at Ecuador for the first time. And uh, so I captured their, uh, their nice blonde domes right there, just taking it all in. And I, I would like to say that they turned around and like fell prostrate in worship, um, but they actually just turned around and said, Dad, the mountains are awesome. Yes, son, they are. This next picture uh, was pretty incredible. This is uh, a boa constrictor um, that Dawson is enjoying. Um, the, the gentleman there, uh, he was, the boa was just kind of crawling around on the ground and the gentleman just picked him up and I'm just kidding. It came out of like one of those like, this is like basically a tourist moment, but still, still pretty cool. So Dawson doesn't seem scared. He was the only family member uh, to do this. So we give him uh, mad props. This, uh, this next picture comes from my favorite um, city outside of St. Charles in the world. Uh, this is Banos, Ecuador. And uh, you can see an unbelievable, unbelievable view from the city. Quick story about Banos. Some of you in this room have bungee jumped in Banos. Could you raise your hand if, if you're here and you've bungee jumped? Okay, so you guys see these hands. So there's a bridge uh, down below in the city there in Banos, Ecuador. And uh, I took my son's uh, dune bugging around Banos in the mountains. And uh, my sons uh, stopped on the bridge where Ben and others have bungee jumped. And so we're just taking it all in. We're watching some of the guys jump off the bridge. It only costs $15. General rule of thumb, if a bungee jump costs $15, probably pass, okay? A hard pass, maybe. Well, it turns out, true story, the day after we left, someone died bungee jumping on that very bridge in Banos. And uh, like we were sitting uh, in, in a coastal town, and all of a sudden this newscast came, came through that, uh, the rope was too long, and the guy, so, you know, my sons could have been standing there, Ben, it could have been you, um, but anyway, that's, that's Banos, Ecuador, beautiful stuff. Now, this next picture uh, seems like just a nice, cute picture, but let me explain what's happening in this picture. At our last covenant members meeting, many families in our church body got to come up and choose the profile of a child in the village of Santana, where we've planted a church, helped foster some awesome work by an indigenous pastor named Dario and his wife, Maria. And what happened is people came up, kind of like Compassionate International, like maybe you've seen at a concert, and they chose children. Well, these are kids that, 77 of them, that live right here in this village, that we took pictures of, that we have relationship with, and that, uh, that Dario was ministering to. And so me and my family, with, with only a driver, there's no interpreters, it's just me, okay? I'm our interpreter at this point, which for those of you that have ever been on a trip, you know how excellent my Spanish is, okay? And, and we show up and our kids just start playing with all the kids and we're running around and we're playing football and it was one of the most beautiful moments of my life. No language, like my kids couldn't speak any Spanish except hola and they were even botching that. But we, we, just, we just enjoyed 
And then all of a sudden, we realized who this was. This is one of the children that we've been praying for. This is Etza. And Etza sits on our refrigerator. And all of a sudden, like, all of us were like, this is Etza. Like, like, like this is happening right now. We've been praying, right, for salvation and for the, the bondage of uh, uh, spiritual depravity to be broken and that, uh, that, that this young man would come to Christ. And then, next slide, we found, we found uh, Sharif. Next slide. Sharif was right there, too. We've been praying for him. He's on our fridge. So I just want to remind you of the opportunity that we have as a church. It's one thing to have an international partner, but it's a whole nother thing to hand Maria a bunch of letters that you wrote that have been delivered to these kids. So we were so unbelievably humbled. But there was one more moment that I captured. We were on a river, me and the fam, headed down the Amazon tributary where there's piranha in the water. So that's kind of exciting in and of itself. And all of a sudden, I look over, and pretty much all it is is foliage and and trees and brush and massive, but I look over, and this is the undoctored picture that I took. And now many people would just think, oh, that's a, that's a really cute picture, Mark, and, and some have even asked me, like, so did you Photoshop that? Like, that's classic, you know, pastor work there. Um, this is exactly how I took it. In fact, I captured a video going back of the exact same tree. This moment has driven so much of my heart in tonight. And so I want you to just tuck this picture away and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter three. This passage, when I say it's monumental, I'm not saying that in any regard lightly. This text, this passage, is a monumental text for us to study. Ephesians chapter three, let's start here with verse one. It'll be on your screen as well. For this reason, Paul writes, and you remember the reason, where we left off last week was verse 22, the text that Jared taught in him, verse 22, from last week, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit being built together, powerful work of God revealed. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I really considered just preaching verse one tonight. I'm not gonna do that, but I really considered it. Because there is so much here in just verse one. How about the fact that Paul is in a Roman house arrest prison and he doesn't say that he is a prisoner of Nero. How about the fact that Paul writes he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus? How about the fact that in the midst of suffering, Paul recognizes who is sovereign? It's the same conversation Jesus had with Pontius Pilate when Pontius Pilate thought he had power over Jesus. And Pontius Pilate is looking at the king of the universe saying, hey man, what do you want me to do here? And Jesus literally is looking at him, saying at times and communicating and surely thinking, 
you think you hold my life in your hands, you hold nothing, Pontius. You hold nothing. It's the same experience that Stephen encountered as he was persecuted and stoned, and quite honestly, it's our opportunity as well. We are never suffering at the hands of some sort of imperial system. We are suffering for Christ, persecuted for Christ. At times, in many places of the world, there are prisoners of Christ Jesus. So I love the fact that Paul recognizes why he is suffering and for whom. But the next piece that's really, really, really interesting is the fact that he says, uh, previous slide if you don't mind, uh, previous slide, he says, on behalf of you Gentiles. Well, there's generally two categories of people, Jews and everyone else, okay? So it's really, really, really simple. Jews and then Gentiles. So a Gentile, for those of you that aren't connecting the dots, is a non-Jew, okay? We're all together there, right? It's pretty simple, pretty easy to follow. Paul's message, and in particular here to the church in Ephesus, and certainly all across the board, is to the Gentiles. So my question was, well, what got him into prison for the message to the Gentiles? So if you'd like some uh, reading later before you go to bed, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 21, and Acts chapter 22 will be an unbelievable blessing for you. I thought I'd summarize. Next slide. Check this out. Acts 22. Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem. This is at the end of his speech, which they allowed him to share. And here's what Paul says. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, Paul says, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Verse 21 is huge. And he said to me, the Christ, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul standing in a speech with a ton of Jewish dignitary around. And he says, the Christ told me that my message is going to be taken to the Gentiles. Let's see how that goes for him. Next slide, okay? Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he shall not be allowed to live. So just at the mention of the word Gentile, the contention between Jews and Gentiles is so dynamic that Paul merely says, after they've listened to this entire speech, and Jesus called me to the Gentiles, now all of a sudden they want to kill him. And plot after plot of killing him happens. It's unbelievably insane. Now, maybe one of the most poignant questions you've been asked in a while, or at least wrestled with, next slide. Why would anyone put themselves in a place where persecution is imminent? Paul knows at the moment he says Gentile in this Jewish context that believe the Messiah is only for them, he knows this is a death sentence. I'm asking you, why would anyone put themselves in that scenario when persecution is surely going to happen? 
Why would Jesus, knowingly claiming to be the Son of God, which was 100% true, standing before all of the religious leaders, knowing what it would mean, why would anyone do that? That question is going to drive us tonight. Let's look at verse 2. For this reason, I, Paul, he says, and then he says this, assuming that you have heard, he says, of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, um, for the last five, six weeks, uh, I've been studying the word stewardship. And I want to bring you in to where I'm at tonight uh, fully. Uh, I started studying stewardship and started digging into all of the passages in the entire scripture that have even stewardship connotation. And what started happening is the deeper and deeper and deeper that I got, I knew that I was reaching a point where I wasn't just learning anymore, but that God was confronting me. Uh, we could define stewardship as caring for God's possessions. So we are stewards of our time. God owns it. We were bought at a price. It's not our time, it's his. We could say that we steward our financial resources. They're not yours. That's not your wallet. It's not your car. It's not your house. We are merely stewards of them. You guys are going to hear me teach on this a lot more forthcoming. If you'd like to see the primary text for me anyway on stewardship, it's the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. On my trip in Ecuador, I started reading the parable of the talents. The master says, all right, I'm going to give you five talents, I'm going to give you two talents, and I'm going to give you one talent. To the one with five and two, they steward the talents well. And the master comes back and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in the joy of the master. But to the one that he gave one, that individual hid in fear the talent, stewards it poorly. And what happens is, is when the master comes back, he says, you wicked and slothful servant. I'm reading this in Ecuador. And all of a sudden, I realized something. About six months ago, I was uh, sitting with Pastor Jeff, and I was confessing to him that I know that I am not healthy. Uh, I know I'm not physically healthy. I don't sleep. Uh, I don't exercise. I eat poorly. And I was telling Jeff back then, in my sin, quite honestly, Jeff, I'm just not that interested in changing. Uh, for me, health kind of sat on its own island. As long as I was stewarding the rest of these things, at least I thought in my mind decently well, then my health, I could just let it go. I'm reading the parable of the talents by myself on a porch. And all of a sudden, the one thing happened that had to happen. I mean, my heart, as God literally face to face, I sense confronted me. 
my heart in one instance just changed. I realized that I had been a poor steward of something that God had given me. I realized that I've made a mockery of exercise to you and I'm coming to you right now asking for your forgiveness. For every time I've joked about food, for every time I've joked about exercise, for every time I've made light of the way that we steward our health, I am so, seriously, so unbelievably sorry. I mean, I just, I just wept first in confession because repentance is seen over time. It's not seen in a moment. But then what's happened is all of a sudden food, for me, which has always been a comfort, it's always been something I turn to to make me feel better when the days are bad. All of a sudden, my whole mentality has shifted about food and about exercise, not in any way, shape, or form, in an idolatrous way, but in a stewardship that I know God has called me to steward that health that he has blessed me with, and so it's time to be diligent and repent. We all steward a whole lot of things. And tonight we're going to talk about one of those things that we steward, like Paul is talking about now in his life. I've read up on a lot of ancient churches. Jonathan Edwards, I was talking with uh, to a brother earlier, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon. And every single one of these ancient churches has one thing in common. The church was trudging along, trudging along, trudging along. But then all of a sudden, in one failed swoop, the church stopped just learning. And all of a sudden, there was this collective repentance. There was this massive amount of brokenness. Now, I don't know if that will be this night, and I can't, I can't make it happen. I wish I could. But I'll tell you what I've experienced more than ever in my life is the joy of obedience. I never knew or realized how much my sin in the stewardship of my health was impacting every other aspect of my life. Again, convinced myself, oh, that health can just sit over here. I was dead wrong. It was impacting everything. Consistently heading back to it. Body, seriously, please, I am sorry. I've been with some of you in individual conversations. From the pulpit, I know I've joked about it. Pray for me. I'm praying that those days are done. It's been an unbelievable week. I've started running in my neighborhood. You guys know how much I used to hate running. But now it's worship. Now I'm running around my neighborhood. My neighbors are like coming outside because they're wondering what's wrong. And what's happening is, especially with the prompting of the seven, now I'm running and just praying for my neighborhood up and down. What if? What if tonight was one of those nights just like the ancient church? What if tonight wasn't just a night that we learned? What if tonight God moved in such a way that there was this collective, holistic repentance that happened? What Paul is saying is, and he says it many times in his writings, 
is that he is a steward of one message in particular. Now that message, we're going to see him define in verse 3 to 5. Check this out. He's stewarding, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, he says, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Do you guys like the game Marco Polo? You guys, you guys fans? Uh, it's interesting for me playing Marco Polo because uh, when I'm Marco, you know, it's, it's my name, right? So you guys taking you a second there. My name's Mark, and so Marco Polo kind of gets weird. But uh, on the trip, uh, we were in many pools, and my kids love to play Marco Polo. Now, when a kid plays Marco Polo, you, you know what happens, right? Like they come out of the water, and you can see like the little underneath of their white eye. Marco, Paul can't see you at all, and I'm coming just to you like a tractor, but you know what I'm saying? Like, the kids are always doing that, right? Well, listen, imagine generation after generation after generation that was literally closed eyes, left in the dark, not knowing the mystery. Now, the Greek word for mystery means a little something different than our word mystery. The Greek word for mystery is something that was hidden to human knowledge but that has now been revealed by the power of God. So there is a mystery where everyone was closed-eyed to. It was hidden from human understanding and knowledge. But what Paul says is he's been stewarding this ministry, called to steward this, mis- uh, this mystery. And here's what he says the mystery is in verse 6. Unbelievable stuff. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let me show you how monumental this is. When I was in high school, we had a conference. Did you guys all have a conference in high school? teams that you consistently played in your sports. Uh, For me, my most hated rival was the Pena Panthers. Some of you who are from Illinois, you know where Pena is. Uh, The Pena Panthers. I grew up from seventh grade all the way to when I was a senior in high school playing the same top three athletes in baseball, football, and basketball. The same guys. We watched each other grow up. We hated each other growing up. Every time we played against each other, we were like, you know, staring down one another, uh, oftentimes even probably saying stuff about one another's mothers, you know, we, we literally just hated each other, hated each other, so much so that it ended up my junior and senior year of football, we had to play Pena for the conference championship both years, both years. Now that hatred, that angst that I felt in my heart as we would pull into Pena, just seeing the name on the, on the little like green city sign like made me grimace. I mean, I want to take a baseball bat to this green sign just because they were Pena. That imagery pales in comparison 
to the amount of dissension between the Jew and the Gentile. I told you this is a monumental text. Why? Because of what happens here. Because of God's call to Paul to steward the, uh, the mystery. To take the message to the Gentiles. Can we have one minute right here where we just celebrate your sitting in these chairs as a Gentile? This happened. He stewarded the, the, the mystery. He took the message. He proclaimed the gospel from prison as he planted churches. And now here we all are. Not just representative of that. Next slide. These three highlighted words show just how deep this connection is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow, three things. They're, they're fellow heirs, they're fellow members, and they're fellow partakers. It's like if Pena and us all of a sudden were on the same team and we just showed up with one another and we had been in discord for years and years and now we're like family. Think of how disruptive that would be to the culture. It's why they wanted to kill Paul for it. It's why he's in prison. Because the Jews wanted a message that was only for them. Well, in our context, maybe it's not Jew and Gentile. Maybe that's not the battle that you struggle with a group of people being a fellow heir or member or partaker. But maybe there's some other things. Next slide. Do you struggle that because of the gospel, every race, every single race in the entire world through the person of Christ is a fellow member and partaker and heir. This is a primarily one racially cited church body. And there are days where I grieve that because I look at our city and I see plenty of African Americans. And I see plenty of Hispanics. And I see plenty of, honestly, just about every race in the palette of God's creation. Right here. And so it causes me to ask certain questions. My grandfather, not the one who had massive influence in my life, but my grandfather, who was an alcoholic and abused my mother, he was a racist. And I would never, ever, ever say that I was a racist. And I, I'm guessing that just about every person in this room would never, ever, ever claim to be a racist. All I'm saying is start examining how you perceive in your mind, not the thing you would say, because you know and I know how to say the right thing. Start to perceive in your mind the moments where quite honestly, you would rather 
Jesus only saved this kind of people. Things would be a lot easier, we think, in the deep components of our heart. What if massive repentance happened on that issue tonight in this church? Listen, again, I'm talking about the caverns of your heart. I'm not talking about the things that you would say. That moment when you have that interaction with someone and you think in your mind, oh, I bet they're probably like this. Thrusting some sort of assumption on a whole race of people. What happens in Christ is every race. Are you willing? Am I willing to accept the plans of God? Are we? Or do we want to tell God whom he's to save? Maybe for you, it's not every race. Next slide, maybe for you. Every economic status. In Christ, there are no second-rate sons and daughters. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? In Christ, there are no categories of people who have more and who have less. But I'll guarantee you, in some of you, there's some angst in your heart. When you get around certain classes of people, for some of you, it's when you get around the rich. You start quoting passages like, well, you know, Jesus said it's very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, and you are phenomenal proof of that. Remember the rich young ruler went away sad. I bet you're just like the rich young ruler, jealous, seeing generosity, wanting to believe it's for selfish gain. Still others of you look at the poor. And all of your thoughts go to some judgmental statements because you have this one or two interactions one time and now all of the poor are like this. What would happen in this body if all of a sudden every economic status was represented to the tilt in this room. You ready for that? Am I ready for that? Am I ready to see the plans of God unfold in that way? Because I'll guarantee you, what's happening all over the world is the poor and the middle class and the rich, all who have one equal need, are coming to one Savior. Again, the Jews wanted to kill Paul for it. I'm just asking, do you deal, do I deal with some of that same contention? Maybe for you it's neither of those two. Maybe for you, next slide. Hello, somebody. Anybody from that church? Woo! I've heard of what goes on at that church. Anybody who would submit to the kind of teaching at that church, I don't understand the way they express their worship in that church. They must be wrong. Have you ever been? No, I just heard. Have you ever talked to the pastor or hear from some of the folks there what they believe? No. But I read that one post that one time. Okay. 
Listen, it's unbelievable to me that in this city right here, there are God-fearing, Jesus-loving Methodists and God-fearing, Jesus-loving Lutherans and Pentecostals and non-denominational and people that meet in house churches and people that go to Catholic churches. If Christ is the common denominator then all in Christ are sons and daughters. Sure, there are Catholics who don't believe. Welcome to this room. Sure, there are people at Matthias's Loud who don't believe. Sure, at the Lutheran church and the Methodist church. Listen, here's what I believe, and I have this vision in my mind of the seven or a concept like it branching out not just from Matthias. The seven's already been launched, by the way, at two other communities in our county. Two other churches have adopted the same idea and model. But I'm picturing literally every church in this city, God-fearing, Jesus-loving folks, embracing a missional heart, and together we become the troops on the ground. Not just this church or that church, but one unified in Christ. You guys see, this isn't just learning. This is a repentance issue. This is what I'm trying to tell you, my friends. Maybe some of you have become Matthias brand loyal. And I'm telling you right, it's time to repent of that and become Jesus loyal. What happens and what Paul is saying in this unbelievably epic passage is this mystery is that Jew and Gentile are now connected. And I pray that none of these three things are the new enemy. I pray that this church gets to see more diversity in every one of these categories in unity than ever before, but we must repent. Here's what he goes on to say in verse seven, explaining how this fleshes out in the mystery. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. Now, this creates a really interesting question because we're not apostles like Paul. We're not. Okay, to be an apostle, the time of Christ, it meant that you were commissioned by Jesus, sent by Christ. That's not us. But the question is, what are we? Next slide, let me say it this way. How would you fill in this sentence? Of this gospel, I was made. Paul says to be a minister. Paul would say to be an apostle. Paul would say to take the message to the Gentiles, I'm asking you. Of this gospel, I was made. Now, there are some things that are going to be unique to you because of your spiritual giftings because of how God has called you, but there are certain things that we would all unify in this. Of this gospel, we were made ambassadors. Of this gospel, we were made disciplers. 
of this gospel. We were made to love the unlovable of this gospel. We were made to forgive even when it doesn't make sense of this gospel. We were made to take as ministers of reconciliation a message of reconciliation to the world. This is how we were made. What I'm saying is, in the time of Paul, it may seem untouchable. Well, that's for him. He's an apostle. My friends, we were made in the likeness of God to bear the image of God to a lost and dying world. And then verse 8, he drops a grenade. To me, though I am the very least of all of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Okay. Seriously, by raise of hand, how many of you would say that Paul is the least of the saints? How many would, that's where you would rank him, the least? Okay. No one. All right. Well, the question is, why does Paul? Now, some of you are thinking, nice, false humility, Paul. He's trying to butter up the church in Ephesus. Look, guys, I'm so humble. I am the least of all of these saints. When really you guys know I have baller status, right? Like, it seems like maybe some sort of false humility. I actually don't think that's what's happening in Paul at all. In fact, I think Paul believes in a truth that Jesus taught. Next slide. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, an argument arose among them to which one of them was the greatest, the disciples, again, showing how awesome they are. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child, put him by his side, and said to the disciples, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Look at what he says. For he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. I want to ask you a question. Next slide. Who's beneath you? Who's less than? You see, when you're the least, you serve the least. When you're the least, you're not only embracing the fact that we're to count everyone more significant than ourselves, like Philippians says. When you in your heart believe completely unworthy, Paul would say here, listen, I was killing Christians, persecuting Christians. There is no, there is no even possibility that I deserve to be called by God to be an apostle. I am the least. Well, when you believe you're the least, you serve the least. And do you know what Jesus says when he's talking about final judgment? Do you guys remember? When you have served the least of these, you have served too. Me. Who's beneath you? Is that one neighbor beneath you because they wronged you that one time? So now all of a sudden it creates this classification scale. Well, I've got more of this than them, so here we go. How about the boss or the co-workers that treat you poorly? And instantly in your heart and your mind, you think to yourself, well, look at how they're acting. Look at who they are. Boom, here comes the notches. And one by one, 
your life just keeps looking better and better and better than nearly everyone around you. And what happens in that mentality is you become not the servant, but the one who believes they deserve to be served. It is the biggest thing in the confines of Christian community that is plaguing the church. Those people who believe they deserve to be served instead of embracing who Jesus says is the greatest and that is the least. Imagine walking in this room believing you're the least. I don't deserve a seat. I don't deserve a drink of water. I don't deserve this place in light. I don't deserve this relationship. God's been gracious, but I, I am the least, the worst of sinners, Paul says in another place. What if repentance happened in that issue? Seriously, imagine this right now. What if you went home tonight and you listed everyone literally in your life who you've placed beneath you? And what if one by one, the Spirit in His kindness prompted you to call those people and you literally repented? I have put my life ahead of yours. And I did that for this reason. And I am sorry. I long to spend the rest of my life serving you. Some of you spouses need to have that conversation. You put your spouse beneath you. Your children beneath you. And the biggest opportunity we have is to take the position of the least. And in so doing, serving everyone. Incredible stuff. Verse 9 and 10 as he's bringing this to a massive pinnacle. And to bring, he says, in this preaching to the Gentiles... Bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and the heavenly places. What he's saying is this mystery needs to be seen and heard by all. From the heavenly places all the way down to the Gentile leaders, all the way down to the Gentile peasants, it doesn't matter. Gospel come and disrupt everyone. And in verse 11, he adds this. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So before we see the end of this powerful statement, before he gets to an awesome prayer, he says all of this is because the great God of the universe has allowed us access. And then in verse 13, he says this. So I ask you, church in Ephesus, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, most of us, when writing a letter like this, we would make it sound really, really bad. And I'm having to eat, eat, eat cockroach, you know, cockroaches, and I haven't slept in days, and it's miserable here. 
It's super duper hot. There's no AC in this jail. You'd never believe what I'm experiencing, the ridicule, the kind of persecutions. And instead, what Paul says is, don't feel sorry for me. Don't lose heart. Why does he say this? Next slide. It's because something is happening in Paul that believes this. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul has become one of the most well-known evangelists in the modern world. Maybe not in all the Gentile circles, but certainly in several aspects of the world, this dude is prominent. His gifts astounding, his message powerful, prolific. And yet, he has taken a posture of denial. Next slide. You remember this question? Why would anyone do that? Why would you? Why would you put yourself in a position and take a bold approach for the person of Christ when you know persecution is coming? Why? Why would Paul, why would you? Can I tell you? Here's why. Next slide. Check this out, my friends. Paul is a man who has nothing to lose and knows he has already gained everything. What does he have to lose? He says to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's a man on fire because literally people can take his life away and then he gains an eternity with the king. He's a man who has nothing to lose. Which is why he can deny himself. Well now all of a sudden things get really heavy really fast. We could say it this way. When you believe you have a lot to lose, you will rarely, if ever, put yourself in a situation where persecution is likely. You don't want to lose notoriety. You don't want to lose friendships. You don't want to lose your position in your company. You're not interested in losing, in your perception, respect. And so all of the things that are stacking up against you that you don't want to lose are now reasons that you and I don't deny ourselves. If I deny myself, then what's going to happen is this person will end the relationship. As if this person dictates in any way, shape, or form your life, and as if this person is the king of anything. What would happen? Can we have fun just for a second? What would happen if every single person in this room believed they had nothing to lose? And that they had already gained everything. What would happen? Like imagine our neighborhoods tomorrow. I got nothing to lose. 
I mean, our neighbors are catching us doing all kinds of stuff. They're seeing us pray for our neighbors in the street. They're watching the hospitality of our homes open our doors to people who it definitely doesn't make sense to welcome in. What if there was this collective repentance that said, you know what, God? Make us as a church believe that we already have everything and that we literally have nothing to lose. I've been uh, anxious to share this with you for literally three weeks. I've been bouncing off the walls for three weeks because I wanted to share this one truth with you. Next slide. The call to deny ourselves is used by God to glorify himself and disrupt the pattern of the world with the gospel. Paul knows that in the denial of of himself, it's going to mean that he's going to be persecuted. It's going to mean he's eventually going to be executed. But he knows it's because God is going to use the denial of himself to disrupt the world with the gospel. Some of you believe, like I've believed before, that when Jesus says, deny yourself, it's just because he's playing games with us. Let's see if I can command them to deny themselves. Let's see if they'll do it. And God begins to seemingly play chess with our lives. A pawn here, a rook there. Let's see what happens here. When the Christ in the Gospels, commands his disciples to give up their life. He does so for a purpose. So that we could be sitting in this room right now. Holy Spirit all of a sudden rising up in us. Believing that it's the Holy Spirit working through us in the denial of ourselves That all of a sudden the foundations of the world begin to shake. Because selfless living makes absolutely no sense to this world. Next slide. Instead, this is our battle. I think many of us deny ourselves for ourselves. I can deny pizza and french fries, Snickers some of my favorite fruits all day long and that denial be so I lose weight. You guys see what I'm saying? All of us can deny ourselves so that other Christians would say, oh, look at the humble, self-sacrificial servant of God. Only serving for recognition. Only being humble in public settings, being very verbal about your humility so that others would say, oh my goodness, look at the humility. Look at the kindness. Again, what if collectively we repented of any of this in us? No denying ourselves for ourselves, but denying ourselves because God has a different plan and that plan, next slide, is seen in this powerful truth. God uses our denial of self to first, first, next slide, show the world the way he loves. 
We're not gonna love the world if we care too much, my friends, about our comfort. We're not gonna selflessly love the world if we care too much about our material possessions. We show the world the power of the love of God when we say, here, Lord, I lay down my life. I have no interest in myself. I would rather in all things and in all ways serve you. And that, my friends, is when the love of the world, not in terms of its culture, but in terms of its people, begin. Next slide. God uses our denial of self to show the world how he forgives Listen, seriously, can you forgive anyone when you're more interested in yourself? Is it ever possible? There may be 16, 17, 20 people right now that you have an unforgiven heart towards right now, and it's really all built around yourself. If I forgive them, then this. They'll burn me again, they'll come after me again. Our self-denial as the Holy Spirit moves in us shows the world God's forgiveness. It never ends. Grace is always present. God uses our self-denial to number three, show the world that joy is found in obedience. Don't feel sorry for me, Paul says. I'm not sending you a sob story, Ephesus. I'm sending you a story to let you know that I stewarded this message to the Gentiles. And guess what, Ephesus? You have heard the truth of the gospel because, because there's joy in obedience. And don't you picture Paul writing from house arrest, not with a smile on his face, but with a joyful heart, with one that knows I have nothing to lose. And finally, God uses our denial of self to show the world the power of his sacrifice. Well, how does that work? The power of his sacrifice is what transforms us. The power of his sacrifice is what has taken these selfish, self-centered, addicted-to-self people and because of the blood shed on the cross has transformed them. So our denial of self tells the world, look at what God can do. He took my self-consumed life and instead made me the least. And it's at the position of the least that I have found the most joy and the most life. So it's interesting to me. Next slide. That the entire world and every single person in this room have the same answer. We in this room are equally sinful. We in this room are equally in need, every person. Male, female, African-American, Hispanic, Asian, Caucasian, every economic status, all of us 
have the exact same need. Isn't it incredible that the collective need that all of us have in this room was answered by one red tree? That's what it took. One perfect sacrifice. One Savior who would become sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. One Christ who would put our sin on his shoulders. All of us, Jew, Gentile, black or white, every economic status, isn't it interesting, church, that though we're so diverse in our approach, we share one Savior. And it's that that unifies us. So what if, next slide, what if tonight in this collective repentance, what if tonight as a church we said, here, Lord, here, Lord, here's our life Here's our comforts. Here's my insecurities. Here's my battles. Here's my frustrations. What if the Spirit came in such a way right now where collectively we just repented? And we said, God, we long to deny ourselves so that our co-workers can know Jesus. God, we long to deny ourselves so that St. Charles would be disrupted by the gospel. God, we long to lay our lives down so the least in my life would be served. What if this moment for our church became the turning moment where you finally surrendered all of the things that you believe to be life? And what if tonight all of a sudden, all of us had nothing to lose. So come to the cross, to the tree that represents our hope. And in your willingness to say, here, Lord, take a piece of that bread and dip it in the cup. And as one body tonight, Let's share in the one answer.